0: All right. Thanks, AJ. Good morning. Uh, Let me draw your attention to just one thing in the bulletin that we didn't mention. You see uh, the next steps box there? Uh, When you come to a church, one of the things that we tell everybody who comes to our church is uh, try us out for six weeks. Because uh, when you're making decisions about what it means to join a church, to um, experience what it means to be a Christian and join yourself into the Christian community, a local expression, of what God sets the church is, that takes some time. There's some um, observation that you need when you come to a church. Because all of us, when we walk into a new environment, whether you're, if this is the first time you're at Citadel Square, you're making some uh, observations about our church. Maybe you're making observations about where we are or the kind of building or space this is or how gorgeous it is in terms of its decoration. Uh, you may wonder, why do they only let bald people on stage? What, what, what's the deal there? Um, you, you're asking all sorts of questions. Uh, and you may even not even be able to verbalize them because the decisions that you make to join a church is a significant one. And when you leave this place and you talk to your friends or to your spouse or to your kids, you go, how did it feel? What was it like? What was the subtext in that place. What, you know what subtext is? It's the things you say without saying them. So if you like sarcasm, like I do, you can say things that sound good, but that mean something else. Amen, sarcastic people? Right? And that's happening all the time. And we make those decisions almost um, intuitively about how a place feels. What did, I, what did I feel like when I was in the room? Did I hear something perhaps that I hadn't heard before? And what we challenge you and ask you and encourage you to do is take time in that decision to join a church so that you would understand what's most important to us as a church. So let me tell you where we are. That's a little commercial. Let me tell you about where we are in our Advent series. Last week, we looked at John chapter three, perhaps one of the most well-known passages in all of the scriptures. And we looked at, Uh, one verse in that with kind of some surrounding ideas there with Jesus and his conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And we looked at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life, right? And what we're doing during our Advent series is trying to get a look at the incarnation. God becoming man. And we're not doing it through the characters that we see so often in the Christmas story. We're not looking at the wise men or the angels as much or Mary and Joseph or Nicodemus and Elizabeth and none of that. We're looking at it from God's perspective. What is it that God is trying to show us and tell us about himself in the incarnation? And what we looked at last week in John chapter 3 is we saw the heart of God. That God so loved, he demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus for us. And we spent time in that. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. We're going to look at the son as Paul explains him. We're going to look at Jesus and his incarnation from a spot in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2. As my iPad does not apparently, any longer recognize my thumbprint. Philippians chapter 2. You there? Okay, now turn back to John chapter 13. Keep your finger in Philippians 2 and take a look at John 13. Let me show this to you here in John 13. Uh, When it comes to church, what I mentioned just a minute ago in terms of subtext is incredibly important because if you come into a church and the subtext in that place is we're the smart people then you're going to feel it won't you if the subtext there we go oh god praise the lord there we go okay if the subtext in your church is get your life together and then come to Jesus you're going to feel that too won't you If the subtext in a church is try hard for Jesus, then you're going to have a lot of people who all come to church sweaty because they're all working as hard as they can for Jesus, thinking that's the only way I can draw near to Jesus, the only way that God can accept me. But here's what I want to put in your mind as we look at Philippians chapter 2 and John 13, just as we introduce this idea. What if the aroma of, if the subtext that existed in our church as we gathered together and shook hands with one another and spoke about what was going on in our lives, what if that subtext was you matter to me? What if that permeated the tone and conversation of the people that we know in our body? That what you're going through, where you're at in this season of life, how you're processing those things matter to me. You are important to me. Can you imagine the kind of church that would be? Wouldn't you want to go there? Now, I want to show you this from John chapter 13 before we look at Philippians 2. John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now this is one of the last things that Jesus does before they sing a hymn, take the Lord's supper and and, uh, step out into the night to be betrayed. Now, later on in the chapter thirteen twelve it says this, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So you have that picture of Christ in your mind. You with me? That image of Christ being the consummate servant, of taking the lowest place. Now what I want to do is to have you turn to Philippians chapter two, and we're going to look at that from God's perspective. Christ models something for us in John 13 that uh, is important for us. Now, Philippians 2 is where we're going to be, and we're going to spend our time here together in Philippians chapter 2. Before we do that, let's pray. Ask God for his grace and his wisdom and illumination here as we look into his word. Father in heaven, we pause for just a moment considering the model of servanthood that we have in the person of Jesus in John 13. That as he, our Lord and our teacher, models for us how we ought to treat and think about one another, we pray that even now as that scripture illumines our heart and mind through the power of your spirit, that we might be men and women who are transformed by your grace into servants. We pray, even before we get into this passage here in Philippians chapter 2, that you would give us the mind of Christ when it comes to our relationship with our spouse, or with our kids, with our friends, or our classmates, or our coworkers, with our neighbors, that there would be such a conviction in our hearts and minds that we would begin to model and embody the mentality of Jesus Christ. He is our hope and our salvation, our wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption. He's the purpose for which we gather. He is the image of the invisible God, and the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. So that as we consider these things about Jesus Christ, as we consider three little bitty verses here for just a minute, would we leave this place filled with awe? Filled with worship. Confessing who is like this person. Who is like Christ. Who could do this? And would we, by looking in your word, gain great encouragement. Great courage. Great steadfastness and perseverance to be the men and women that you call us to be. In our relationship with others. We know this only comes through the illumination of your word, through the power of your spirit, and most of all, by the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2. Now, we're going to look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Four little bitty verses here right in the middle. Philippians chapter 2, we won't, I won't give you the whole context of the book of Philippians, but Philippians chapter 2 begins Paul's ethical exhortations to the church which is why I started with us thinking about what kind of church ought we to be? What ought the subtext of your Christian experience in the life of the body be? What should we experience? Now, to take a little bit of a running start, I want you to look at Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ Of others. So as we begin, I want you to examine and just take, you don't need to raise your hand or elbow anybody, but I want you to take mental accounting of the kinds of things that you have been thinking about over the last week. And if I were to be honest, the kind of things that I have thought about over the last week essentially resulted in a me party in my mind. That I was considering things that were important to me, things that were valuable to me, that things that fit my desires, wants, needs, preferences, convictions, opinions. And that's the mental static that has been in my mind over the past number of weeks, probably the past 43 years, let me be honest, is that we inevitably gravitate toward thinking about me, don't we? Now, I feel like I'm pretty important. I feel like the things that concern me are pretty important because they matter to me, that they illumine for me the meest things about me. I like to think about me and wonder about me and dream about me. I like to consider about whether or not my future fits in terms of the things that I would like for me. And inevitably, we and counter Paul's exhortation here in the first few verses. And we're faced with asking the question, who is this Jesus? Why is there sympathy and comfort and affection in him and in him alone? Why is this the foundation of Paul's exhortation? Because for us to have a subtext an aroma of Christ in this place. We need a model, don't we? You can't just exhort somebody into humility. It doesn't work like that. While humility is a command and is not a fruit of the spirit, humility biblically is primarily a choice. What we're going to see here in this text is that Jesus puts something on display for us that's so profound, so incredible as a model that it becomes the reason why you and I can actually be humble. Humble that we can actually live out the admonitions and exhortations of Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul doesn't divorce it and just say, be more humble, no humbler than that. He gives you a vision and a model of somebody who is far more humble than perhaps we've ever considered before. Have you stopped to consider that Jesus is humble? Have you maybe ever heard that God himself is humble. Well, how would I know? And the way you know is Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. So let's look at it here together. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important for us to note this sermon isn't primarily going to be an exhortation about the kind of church we ought to be, though that's what this context is. What I want to do is back up and think about that in terms of the model that that Paul gives to us here. And the first thing we notice is that that kind of subtext, that context in the life of the church comes from having a certain kind of mind. That the way you walk into this place, the way you walk into relationships require that you ought to have the very mind of Christ, which means his perspective needs to be my perspective. That we're given a way of thinking about life and position and relationships that is only ours through the narrow gate of the model of Jesus Christ. So Paul's exhortation to the certain kind of church in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, is rooted in the mind of Christ. Now, you may have a Bible uh, that says, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or it may say, which was also in Christ Jesus. Either way, there's an invitation to share the mind of Christ, would you agree that, that often we have a tendency to rest our perspective on the things that are important to us and the things that we think? And the invitation here for Paul and for this church is to now enter into looking at life through the lens of Jesus Christ. Put on those glasses, as it were. Begin to see the perspective of Jesus Christ when it comes to your life and your relationship with others. So we begin by acknowledging that the humility of Christ is the lens through which we look at life. Now look at verse six, and Paul now launches into his explanation of what it means to have the mind of Christ. What kind of perspective did Jesus have? When he lived and he walked and, and in his incarnation, what was he modeling for us that Paul thinks is so essential to life in the body, life in the church? Verse six, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, let me do some Bible study methods with you. Do you see verse six has the word form in it? You see that? Move your head in a direction if you've ever seen a Bible. Thank you. Verse seven, if you're with me, also has the word form in it. You see that? Now, verse eight also has the word, if you're tracking, three for three, the word form. The first two are the word morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. The third one, which we'll get to in a minute, is not that word. It's the word S-C-H-E-M-A, schema, which means that there, aren't, there isn't really a good English word for what Paul is about to demonstrate for us. But the word morphe speaks to, as we begin this passage, begin this idea, it speaks to the essential nature of something. I am a human male. I will always be a human male. Now, I will have change in my physical features throughout my life that I go from infant, newborn, infant, toddler, elementary, junior high, high school, college, master's degree, peak, and then we go down. That's how it works. The outward man is what? Wasting away, right? Inner, inside, being renewed day by day, right? So you go from young to devastatingly handsome to old and that's it. That's how we all, let me go see Jesus like that. Here's the idea. Paul says he existed. He was, that he had an existence, a time where he was not human and he existed in eternity past in the form, in the essential nature of God. So that before Jesus was born, Jesus was. Amen? That before Jesus arrived, Paul says uh, later on in Galatians, he says that Uh, in the fullness of time Christ was born of a woman born under the law to save those underneath the law that's Paul's point in the book of Galatians that there was a time where divinity entered into and intersected with humanity So we begin here with this idea that Jesus is in the form of God. He is essential God. He he has experienced the glory of the Trinity for eternity past. So that he is eternally and everlastingly and always has been divine. Now, commentators note that for Jesus to be incarnated, it means that he is now going to undergo a change, and any descent for the second person of the Trinity is going to be uh, seemingly uh, a depart from perfection, and that's the exact opposite of what we're about to see in the incarnation. Calvin called this Christ extending his hand to earth. It wasn't a dissension as much as it was an extension so he existed in the form of God. Now, what did he do in the form of God? This is the beginning of the perspective that we ought to have about Jesus Christ and the way he thinks about himself. Now, would you agree that Jesus has profound, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me say it a different way. He has no self image problems. He totally and accurately understands who he is, he's never confused. He knows and accurately communicates to the disciples and to the people during his earthly ministry that he is, in fact, God. Now, the second person of the Trinity, what does he do? Look at the remainder of the verse. He did not count. Now, I just read for you Philippians 2. How are we to count others in this passage? As how significant? More, right? Count one another as more significant than yourselves. Now, the same word is repeated here, which means Paul is now showing you the mind of Christ, that Christ, in his divine self-image, and his awareness of who he is, did not count something that explains the form of God. What did, what did he count? He did not call, count equality. That word is I-S-O-S. You remember geometry? Anybody remember geometry that you don't use anymore, right? You remember the, uh, a triangle called an isosceles triangle? Remember that? An isosceles triangle has two equal, and identical sides. So here's the form of God of the second person of the Son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't consider equality with God, his identical nature and divine essence as being perfectly and completely divine and eternal, just as the Father and the Son are. He doesn't consider it as something to be grasped. Now, that's a rare word. I don't think it's used but one time in the New Testament. Outside of the Bible, in Greek literature, it usually was used in the context of robbery. That there was a seizure and a force and an attacking to grasp something that wasn't theirs. But Paul just told us that The essence of the Godhead was in the second person of the Trinity, so commentators have seen it like this. Not that there was a seizure, but that there was a release. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather, he opened his hand. That he released the divine prerogatives and glory of what it meant to be completely and utterly divine. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus recognized this about himself. Let me read to you from John 17. In Jesus' words in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, he says in John 5, uh, Father, here it is, John 5, uh, 17. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus recognized that his departure from heaven and arrival on earth was a fundamentally inglorious thing. You have flashes of recognition during Jesus' earthly ministry that this person is God. But all throughout his ministry, people just don't understand. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the disciples themselves, the crowds, they continuously misunderstand who this individual is. Imagine that experience for God. John 1 begins this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't put it together. Now, you'll see that here as this passage goes on. So he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. This, verse, uh, this passage, these few verses is call, are called the kenosis. It's from the Greek word that means this here, to empty. K-E-N-O-O is the word. It's usually used in the context of something being uh, forfeited, something being brought to nothing. When Paul in uh, Galatians talks about the cross, or I'm sorry, First 1 Corinthians, talks about uh, the cross being emptied of its power, or the gospel might be nullified that Christ now empties himself. What does that mean? What does that mean that Christ, full of divinity, full of the rights and privileges of being a part of the triune God, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it's explained in context by the next passage, the next phrase. He emptied himself by taking the form. That's that same word. His essential nature is God. And what you're about to observe about Jesus. What you observe about Jesus in John chapter 13 is that now his essential nature during his time on earth is that of a servant. It demonstrates for us something about Jesus's self-awareness, about why he was there. Now in John 3, God gave the son, but Jesus seems to hint at this, if not outright say it during the course of his entire earthly ministry. That the Son of Man in Mark 10 did not come to be served, but to... He recognizes, I'm here for a purpose. He says in John 13, which we began with, that I am among you as one who serves. John 8, Jesus says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. He's a consummate and essential servant that's why john 13 is so profound when we read it why is it that jesus comes and takes the lowest place why is it that jesus comes and demonstrates his heart and his care for the disciples by doing something that the only the lowest servant in the house would do none of the disciples would take that on and jesus models something for us let me ask you a question do you like being in charge be honest. Don't you think that life would go better if people listened to you? I mean, if they would just share your perspective and take your wisdom and insight, I really fundamentally believe that people's lives would be filled with blessing, comfort, joy, peace, security, if they would ask. Because I could give them a perspective that they clearly don't have themselves, and they clearly haven't worked out on their own. And if only they would ask me and I could tell them what to do, their lives would be better. You laugh but you act like that because I act like that. Right? What does it mean to be a servant? It means servants, listen to this, they don't make the call, right? The fundamental nature of a servant is that they are there on somebody else's agenda. Their responsibility is only to please those who are above them. They only and always do that which is asked of them. And Jesus, when he, upon his arrival, is the consummate and perfect divine servant. Now, when you think about God, let's just do a little thought experiment. If I were to ask you to list the first three things that come to mind in your conception of God. I'll bet you, humble servant wouldn't make the top three. You might think glory, you might think eternity, you might think power, you might think sovereignty, you might think miracles, but it would take you a while to get to God is a servant. That's why for Paul, this is so profound. That's why John 13 is so profound, that Jesus himself would serve us. So that while last week we looked at the heart of God, here we look at the humility of God. Do you believe that Jesus is in fact the essential servant? He exists to serve us and to serve the agenda of his heavenly father. That's why he's here and that's why he came. Now, he emptied himself. By taking the form of the servant. And Paul goes on here to say that he's being born in the likeness of men. That word likeness means that which is made to be like something else. By being born, it explains this idea of Jesus' servanthood. Now, Jesus doesn't come. Now, hold on, let me pause. Are, Are you seeing Paul's explanation of the descent of the son? That he existed in the form of God, right, and that second he didn't consider equality with God, equality with God, something to be grasped and held onto, but he opened his hands to it. That he took the form of a servant. The essential nature of the Son was that he, his ambition was to do what is pleasing to God the Father and to do what is absolutely best for you and I. And then now Paul goes on to say he's born in the likeness of men. This now shows you that tipping point, that touch point between divine and human as the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, becomes incarnate. He takes a body to himself. Virgin born, a body to himself. Born in the likeness of men. Now, let me, let's ask a question here too. Let's do another thought experiment. You're doing great with the first two. What would you have observed... Well, let me, ask, let me oh, pause, put that to the side. Let me think about something else. Why is it that Jesus had to be born in the likeness of human men? In the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul says over in Romans. Let me just read you a couple of things from the book of Hebrews that, that tease out this idea of Jesus' Jesus's incarnation. Hebrews 2 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, okay? He took a body, his body was just like your body, just like my body. Had veins and blood and lungs and pumping and pancreases and brains and cerebellums and kneecaps, all that. He had a body just like you and I had a body. Hebrews four says this, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This was the major issue of the first six or seven ecumenical councils, when the church got together and said, "Who do we believe Jesus to be?" And they went all over the place. They said, "Maybe he's uh, he's extra divine and a little bit less Jesus. Maybe he's not a hundred percent God. Maybe he's about seventy-eight percent God, and we put a little twenty-two percent human in there. Let's just try to figure that out." And they just kept knocking heresy after heresy after heresy after heresy, after heresy out because nothing could capture the biblical evidence of who this man was they had to land on him being a hundred percent God because if he's going to take the wrath of God at sin any other created thing or created being would be obliterated by the wrath of God he must be fully God to take the full eternal justice of God but he also must be fully man he can't be kind of man he can't be superman who he looks like a man, but he's also bulletproof. He looks like a man, but he doesn't struggle like a man. For him to fully identify with humanity, for him to fully identify with you and I in our sin and struggle and sorrow, he has to be 100% human. Fully God, fully man. You move off of that, you're a heretic. We burn you. That's the essential testimony of the Christian faith. Do I understand it? No. But I preach it. Amen? That's what we preach. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. Because he's fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. That means, let me just preach here for a second. That means that Jesus understands you. Do you know that? He understands the, the sins and sorrows, the sufferings and the difficulties of life right now that Jesus, being fully human, can say, I get it. The, some of us, I think, have this conception of Jesus. Like, how is Jesus portrayed in the movies? He's a hair model. He's always about six inches off the ground. He's not like us. I mean, he's not like us, us like real, like, He's not get sweaty like me. He doesn't get thirsty like me. He's always smiling and grinning. It's a little awkward. But that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. He partook of flesh and blood, which means he experienced what you experienced. Jesus didn't come during Adam's days when the world was perfect and there was no sin. Jesus arrived in the world that you live in, in the hardship and the difficulty, and his friends died. And people were maimed and suffering under the thumb of Rome. He came into a time and place on this planet that wasn't a great time to be alive. So that you would know and I would know that Jesus in full confidence can say, I understand where you are. Isn't that good news? Why if not, why don't we sing God with us? Because we believe he really became human like us. Verse 8, and being found in human form. Now this speaks to not just his descent, but this speaks to his experience on the earth. Human form, that word is not morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. It's not the essential nature. Who is it that found Jesus? What does that mean? Being found in human form. It means his experience on earth when people looked at him. Now, you would think in the movies, everybody just swooned when Jesus walked around, but that wasn't his experience. Being found in human form means what did you see when you walked around with Jesus? What are the things that you would characterize him as? And this was a real problem for the Pharisees. In fact, let me read you a few pieces here from the scriptures. Being found in human form, here's how Isaiah 53 describes what you would have seen if you were to stand next to Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. When he walked by, you wouldn't notice him necessarily. He wasn't in the magazines, he wasn't on the photo shoot. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't good looking. Don't you? I mean, don't you typically think like Jesus is kind of Brad Pitt? I don't know if that illustration hits now. Brad Pitt is kind of like the heyday of his career. Uh, you kind of go. He's probably six four, about two ten. Run a forty. He's pretty fast. He's got good hands. He knows everything. But Isaiah 53 goes, well, there's nothing in him that we would have thought, ooh, I need to follow that guy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. When you walk past individuals that you don't want to talk to, what do you do? That's what you would have done with Jesus. I go, I I can't talk to you right now. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus didn't arrive in a palace. He arrived in a place that was easily overlooked. He arrived in a place of no great reputation. John 6 says this, when the Jews are grumbling against Jesus... When Jesus is healing the man on the Sabbath, they said this. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Isn't that interesting? That if he grew up in your hometown, you'd go, nah, I know that guy. I know the family he's from. He's definitely not divine. He's, he, didn't, he definitely didn't exist in the form of God. John 10 when the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus, Jesus asked them, well, for what good deed are you stoning me for? And he says this, the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. What couldn't they get over? They couldn't get over the likeness of man. That what they saw was he was just a man. There was nothing unique, nothing special, nothing remarkable about this individual. Do you see the profound humility of the descent of Christ? It gets worse. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. So he arrived, and he didn't just arrive as a influential person. He didn't arrive as a visible person who had rights and rules and authorities and people and subjects and servants and all that. He arrived on the scene, and he, again, humbled himself by becoming obedient. Let me pause right there. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Now, don't you have, I know this is hardwired in me, don't you think that obedience brings blessing? Don't so often you think, if I do the right things, I will perfect my, protect myself from great harm and difficulty in my life. And kind of as a generalization, that's not bad. Drive the speed limit. Pay your taxes. Don't punch people. I mean, that ain't bad. But what's amazing to me is that when Jesus became, he came in the likeness of man, when he was truly and 100% man, he humbled himself by being obedient. You know what that tells me? that Jesus was the most profoundly humble human ever. And where we think that obedience brings blessing, we look at the life of Jesus Christ and we acknowledge that during the course of his three-year ministry, after his baptism, every single step of obedience he took brought him closer and closer and closer to an unjust death. When you think about Jesus as humble, don't think that it's like Jesus the doormat, Jesus meek and mild. Think Jesus the courageously obedient. Why else would Jesus have the courage to confront evil in his day of the Pharisees if he wasn't humble? Why else would he make a whip and drive out the money changers in the temple clinging to the word of God that says, my house will be a house of prayer? We think humble and we think meat. Humble people are profoundly obedient people because they have rejected their plans for their life. They've rejected their ambitions. Remember what was just told to us in Philippians 2, 1 through 4? selfish ambition and vain conceit, rather consider others as more important than yourselves. Humble people are profoundly obedient because they recognize I need wisdom and insight and knowledge and truth from outside of myself. I can't live on my own perspective. I have to live my life in such a way that my single drive is doing what is pleasing to God. You have situations in your life right now that the best question that you can answer is what is pleasing to God in this moment and by asking that question you exhibit profound humility because you acknowledge wisdom doesn't live and die with you but that you need wisdom from the outside you with me he became obedient well how obedient did he become he became obedient to the point of what death He obeyed all the way to the end. You believe in that? He didn't get to the end and give up. He didn't get to the end and falter. That every single thing he said, every single choice he made, was always because of the Father's good pleasure. He became obedient to the death. We like obedience to get us something. Obedience costs Jesus everything. Everything. Have you come to that recognition in your spiritual Christian life that obedience might cost you your reputation? Obedience might cost you money. Obedience might cost you a promotion. Obedience to the will of God in your life means you might not live all of your days in America. And in that, you exhibit a profound humility that captures the mind of Christ. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does Paul say that? Why does he say even? Even death on a cross. It doesn't say, well, he just died of old age or he just died an unjust death, but rather he died a cross-like death. The cross was only around for about maybe 600 years, 700 years. It was started by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans and it really wasn't the most efficient way to kill people. You can kill people a lot easier than crucifying them, which speaks the particular kind of torture that this was. This was done, you as a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. It protected you because there was, you had dignity as a Roman citizen. So when the Jews demand the crucifixion of this man, they are demanding that Jesus join the traitors of the nation, that Jesus join the slaves That Jesus joined the worst criminals of their day. That Jesus would be stripped of his dignity. And when Paul says death even on a cross, a cross kind of death, he speaks to one more step of descent that isn't readily seen in this passage. When the Jews looked at crucifixion, they looked at it, they considered it the same as being hung on a tree. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it says you won't hang somebody on a tree overnight because that person is cursed of God. The thing that it would show you about that individual isn't that it was an accident, But they have lost the very divine favor of God himself. They didn't die of old age. They didn't die of accidental death. It was a particularly shameful testimony that that person is cursed of God. Now, I'm going to ask Jared and the band to come here as we begin to close our time. The very last step of humility in this passage, when Paul says, even death on the cross... And when we recount what is going on in the book of Deuteronomy that demonstrates for us that Jesus was cursed of God, we think of what Paul writes over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, have you seen the descent of the second person of the Trinity? Are you with me? Do you see how low we have gone? How many of his rights and glory and privileges he gave up and opened his hand to? And the final step in his descent is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we talk about God with us, When we talk about Jesus Christ entering into the sinful and broken world and experiencing the temptations that you and I experience, he doesn't just share our sorrows. He doesn't just share difficulty in our lives and suffering, but he shares our very sin. That he becomes the curse of God. He takes my sin and receives the judgment of God Almighty for my sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's the great exchange. So that while Jesus understands our sins he, and our suffering and our sorrows and all of those, he also understands the wrath of God that was due to me. And he takes it upon himself to set me free, that I might go and be forgiven. So that when it comes to Christmas, please don't miss this, Please don't miss that Jesus came into the world to take the sin of you and I upon himself. To take the wrath of God for you and I. And to be the consummate servant. To be the humble servant who served you and who served me by doing something that we couldn't do ourselves. And that becomes our joy, does it not? That becomes, you know, every time we sing uh, Christmas carols, there's a little bit of you that closes your mouth in awe and wonder, isn't there? That there's a little bit where you you just stand in awe at what God has done. And what Paul shows us in this passage is this descent of the son from God's perspective is that he went all the way down to get you and to get me. And that's why we sing. Father, what a truth this is, that you would be such a humble servant to us. We stand in awe that you would love us and that you would serve us, that you would care for us, that you would be kind to us. And for those in this room who walk in and feel a sorrow in this season or feel sins that easily beset us, Father, through your spirit and through your word, would you show us the humility of God in the person of Jesus Christ? And for those in this room who struggle with sins and sorrows and sufferings, they would hear from your word and from the person of Jesus, I understand. I'm here for you. I came and draw near to be God with us. So, Father, bless us as we consider these things this Christmas season. Would our hearts be captured again by the glory of the humility of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.